king of Judah uh, from about 716 BC through down to uh, around 687 BC. And uh, over the last two weeks, uh, we've seen how Hezekiah faced and dealt with three existential crises. The possible destruction of Jerusalem and the people of God at the hand of the Assyrians. The possible destruction of the house and line of King Hezekiah, his own house and, and line, as well as, of course, the house and line of David, the line of the Messiah. And the possible destruction of his own body and soul through an infectious disease. And as we've read these passages together, we've thought about uh, Hezekiah as a man of faith and prayer. Uh, you know, although he suffered much, he suffered terribly. But he's come through with flying colors. I mean, a big gold star. He's done extremely well. Elsewhere in the Bible, indeed, Hezekiah gets a really good report card. 2 Kings chapter 18 says this, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Uh, well, in what follows, I think it's a good idea to keep these things in mind. Hezekiah was a great king. And the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem were very fortunate to have him as king. But we, we keep that in mind as we encounter a somewhat puzzling text. The one which Phil has read to us this morning. Isaiah chapter 39. Uh, it is a short text. And it begins with, at that time. Um, we're still in that time of the Assyrians being a very great threat, approximate threat. And in what follows, we're hearing about the things that have therefore happened immediately after the illness, which we were told about in chapter 38. Uh, if, if you weren't with us last week, just to briefly recap what happens in chapter 38, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. Through the prophet Isaiah came the word of the Lord. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah on his deathbed wept, bawling his eyes out and pleaded with God to remember him. The Lord God changed his mind and said that he would heal him and also save the city from the Assyrians. And also, as a sign of the promised healing, God would make the sun, that the, the shadow, go back up the ten steps. It had already descended down the staircase of Ahaz. So, back now to our text for today. 
And hearing of this illness and also of the recovery, the king of Babylon, uh, Marduk uh, uh, Baladan, sent letters and a gift to King Hezekiah by the hand of a delegation. Uh, Marduk, uh, a son of Baladan, he, he was actually king of Babylon uh, twice uh, in defiance of the Assyrians. And uh, in Judean thinking at this time, uh, Babylon is a long, long way away, a far distant country. But it's a kingdom on the rise. The, uh, um, it, it's a kingdom on the rise. And just at this point in time, just enough, just enough power to challenge the Assyrians, just enough power to challenge uh, Sennacherib. Uh, the envoys then that they are a rather flattering attention for Hezekiah to receive, um, attention from potentially a big player in the international scene. Marduk, uh, on the other hand, he would have been interested, for the sake of his own advantage, in fostering a relationship with anyone who might be a useful ally against those same Assyrians. So Hezekiah receives the letter and the gift which the envoys bring him, Hezekiah, we're told, rejoices uh, over this attention, just as he had promised to rejoice over the Lord his Savior with singing all the days of his life in chapter 38. And verse 2 tells us that Hezekiah received them with great enthusiasm and appropriate hospitality, giving them a palace tour, a city tour, uh, um, uh, a tour of the arsenal, showing them everything. And the description that we get is actually gloriously comprehensive and emphatic. Hezekiah was at pains to show them everything, and he was a king of unusual wealth. From the perspective of ancient Near Eastern hospitality, there's, there's nothing unusual per se in what Hezekiah did. It's, it's what kings did. Um, it's, I guess it's a bit, little bit like for us when you know, guests come to our house and we, we might ask them, you know, do you want the tour? Um, or, or indeed, if, uh, um, if, if they're nosy, uh, like me, we might even say, can I have the tour? You know, we like uh, uh, you know, showing our houses um, and after all, what's happening here is um, nothing other than, than, than what we often routinely do on platforms such as Facebook or WhatsApp or um, Instagram, you know, just to show the world our possessions, our achievements, our experiences. Um, nothing in and of itself inherently wrong, but what these actions signify is that Hezekiah, flattered by the attention of these dignitaries and possibly tempted by the idea of forming an alliance against, against Assyria with the Babylonians, what he's doing, it's reasonable to conclude, is showing off. And, and that temptation, which is not specifically mentioned, so I'm hypothesizing, we're, we're postulating that he's He's, he's in a place of temptation, and the temptation is to form an alliance. Well, that would have been a very, very great seduction. Um, you know, when, when, when we're feeling weak, we're, we're vulnerable uh, to, to grabbing at straws, aren't we? To you know, uh, try to fix the problem ourselves. Something must be done. This is something, therefore, it must be done. Uh, but um, uh, the Lord had 
the Lord, through the 35 years of preaching of Isaiah and elsewhere, he had given a total ban on forming any international alliance for his people in Jerusalem. They were not to do it. They were to learn what it means to trust him and to trust him completely in the face of enemies. Very important that he doesn't give in to that temptation. An important piece in the puzzle of what's going on here is provided elsewhere in Scripture. Second Chronicles chapter 32 says this, But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Uh, learning about that mysterious, miraculous sign, that actually was the true purpose of this, um, of this journey. Um, wise men coming from the east to explore a strange astrological event. Well, we know they're interested in that, don't we? Um, uh, that, that's what they're doing there. That they, want to hear, they want to hear about the sign and what it means. Uh, Hezekiah's pride and ego has blinded him now to his real purpose in life, which is to point to the Lord. Um, Hezekiah, Hezekiah has valuable treasures. He has fantastic things to share and boast about, doesn't he? I mean, he, he, he has real treasure. He has the testimony of knowing the Lord. He has the testimony of a miraculous healing. He has the experience of receiving grace. He knows what it's like to be forgiven by God, of being given a second chance by God. So beautifully symbolized in, in that shadow going back 10 steps, a second chance, the gift of time, 15 years. I mean, this guy's got real things to boast about, not just money and possessions and bows and arrows. Indeed, what we can now see is Hezekiah is actually doing the opposite of what he should be doing. Rather than allowing himself to be flattered into an alliance with Babylon and trusting them to save him, he ought now to be witnessing to them, leading them into an alliance with the Lord who is able to save when we call upon him from all our enemies. Hezekiah's creation purpose, our creation purpose, everyone's creation purpose, as individuals as, as well as a church, our creation mandate, our whole purpose is to point people to Jesus Christ in order that they also might know to whom to turn when help is needed. How to be saved. But he's pointing to himself. He's showing off. So alarm bells ought to be ringing in our heads as we read this, and we, we might not be too surprised then when we read uh, verse 3, then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? 
Where did they come from? Uh, questions in the Bible, when they come from God or from a prophet, are usually an opportunity for confession and repentance. Uh, just as when you're called in to the office of the school principal and they ask, what is this I hear about you? Or when the policeman pulls you over and comes up uh, to your driver's side door and says, do you know why I've pulled you over? That, 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 that's an opportunity, isn't it? That's an opportunity to uh, show contrition, uh, to, to demonstrate some insight into the fact that what we've done is wrong and that we know it's wrong. Indeed, we can get in first with a confession and, and repentance. Um, and that is especially true when the questioner already knows the answer. When the principal, the prophet, or the Lord, they know exactly what you've done. And Isaiah, as a high-ranking official in the court of King Hezekiah, he cannot possibly be ignorant as to the answers to the questions which he himself is posing. He knows what the answers are. Of course he does. From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet, again, the narrator is emphasizing the office in which I, um, Isaiah, son of Amos, is coming. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Um, Hezekiah hides nothing. Uh, he's done nothing wrong that he can detect for himself. His conscience is clean, although that doesn't mean he's innocent. But it does mean that if he, does, if he has done something wrong, he is sincerely unaware of it. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all uh, that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Um, Isaiah was um, anointed as a prophet in the year 740 BC, the year King Uzziah died, uh, Hezekiah's grandfather. Um, and uh, since that time, Isaiah has been preaching, and as part of his preaching has been a consistent theme, and one of his consistent themes is exile. Uh, the people of God are going into exile in a foreign land. Uh, it was in his first sermon, Isaiah uh, chapter 6, if you want to check it out. Isaiah has been forecasting the devastation of the land by the Assyrians, making that obvious, as well as an exile at the hand of foreigners. And this is the first explicit mention of the Babylonians in connection with that exile. But the news of an exile is not new news. Um, a significant part of this message now to Hezekiah is simple. 
Do not trust the Babylonians to save you. Do not make an alliance with them. If you have, or even if you've just been tempted to, repent of that now. But there's more to it than that, of course, far more. Um, how, how would we like it? How would we respond if the word of the Lord came to us saying, everything you've ever posted on Facebook, I'm giving it to the Russians, including, of course, your children and your grandchildren. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. The, the, the wrath of God on a disobedient Israel a nation that refuses to attend to its creation purpose, that wrath will now issue forth in a devastating divine judgment, total and complete loss of everything. As icing on the cake, so to speak, is the message that some of Hezekiah's own descendants will serve as slaves, and not just slaves, but actually as eunuchs, in the palace of the king of Babylon. And given the extraordinary importance of children uh, to the Israelites, uh, of, 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 of babies to the purpose of the Lord, to the saving purpose of that nation. This is, this is almost as bad, as, bad a forecast of the future as could possibly be imagined. I can't imagine how it could be worse. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. In so many ways, this is a staggeringly disappointing response. Hezekiah's response, it looks pious, doesn't it? Affirming that the word of the Lord is good. Um, he, he's looking uh, uh, religious. But the narrator reveals to us his hypocrisy. His real concern is just for himself, that he does not have to suffer this personally. But a word of judgment in the Bible is always opportunity for repentance, for confession and for prayer. Hezekiah, the man of prayer, does not pray. There's no confession, there's no repentance. The, the greatest deficiency in this, the sorriest part of this whole thing, is that Hezekiah has forgotten what he learnt in chapter 38. That we can always negotiate. We, we thought about that in some detail last week, didn't we? God changed his mind. Hezekiah asked a compassionate God to be compassionate and to stave off judgment and to have mercy. And God changed his mind. You can always negotiate. Indeed, asking God to change his mind is part of what it means to be a leader. The heroes of the Old Testament all learned that they can negotiate with God in the face of judgment. Abraham negotiating with the Lord over the fate of his nephew Lot. Jacob wrestling God for a blessing. Moses interceding for the nation of Israel that they would be forgiven rather than destroyed time and time again. David in prayer over Bathsheba's infant, begging God to change his mind. 
Daniel interceding for Israel's return from exile, and frequently elsewhere. What Hezekiah should have done is confessed, repented, asked for forgiveness, the forgiveness that God is dying to give, and then he should have pleaded for a different deal, some kind of different deal, one in which perhaps his sons weren't going to end up eunuchs in a foreign court. This, this isn't the faith of Hezekiah that we've come to know and love. This isn't faith at all. It's, it's, it's selfish fatalism. This is Hezekiah's spectacular leadership failure. And with that, the story of Hezekiah closes. We do not hear another word about him to the close of this book. I guess one question we can ask is why end this story? Um, why end this story about one of, one of, actually, one of the great unsung heroes of the Old Testament? Why, why end this story on a low note? Especially when we consider that all in all, Hezekiah was actually a good guy, you know, one of the best, if not the best, apart from King David, uh, king in the Old Testament. So I, I guess for me, the key question is why leave us disappointed with Hezekiah? Why leave us disappointed? Um, and that's such an important question, I'm actually going to widen it. Uh, why? Um, in one sense, Scripture leaves us disappointed with almost every leader we ever encounter within its pages. By leave, I don't necessarily mean that the last story is the worst, is a negative one, as is the case here with Hezekiah, but certainly along the way, any illusions we might have had about this guy or that, that leader, they get trashed at one point or another. In that sense, Scripture leaves us disappointed with leaders. Disappointed. Disappointed with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob, they all have, Jacob, goodness, they all have multiple spectacular leadership failures, uh, Moses and that rock, David, disappointed with Peter, Paul and the apostles, and we're disappointed because they have their spectacular leadership failures, really spectacular leadership failures, uh, Moses and the rock. David and Bathsheba, not to mention the, the murder of Uriah, Paul, Peter and his betrayal, his caving in to Jewish peer pressure in the, the church in Galatia. Uh, Paul, I'm actually slightly less sure, but his failure to allow Mark a second chance when he himself was only in ministry because others gave him a second chance does look like hypocrisy, doesn't it? Why leave us disappointed with anointed leaders? Well, to answer specifically for Hezekiah, so that we see clearly that Hezekiah is not the promised savior. In fact, actually, he needs a savior. With respect to our immediate context in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has been preaching right from the start from even his first sermon, he's constantly mentioning one who will save, a savior, a holy seed is coming, a refined remnant that will attend to the creation mandate to represent God, to point to God, one who will be given as a baby, a son, yet will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
from the line of David. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor judge by what his ears hear, but he will decide righteously, making decisions for the needy, giving decisions for the poor of the earth. Where you, when you start looking for them, you see that Isaiah is constantly pointing to the coming Savior. And so the message of today's text is simple. It's not Hezekiah. Nor Moses, nor David, nor Peter, nor Paul. Uh, what we now need to do briefly is just uh, talk about Jesus's spectacular leadership failures. And there's something incredibly important I want you to know about that topic. There aren't any. That answer didn't surprise you really, did it? But it is amazing. Can, you know, it, it's actually absolutely staggering. Um, even those who spent years looking for them carefully could not find them. They, they knew their livelihoods depended upon tripping this guy up. Um, my uh, PhD supervisor, back when I was a um, biochemistry student, um, Peter Hartman, he died last year, but um, he, he, taught me, uh, what, he taught me many amazing life lessons. One of the life lessons that Peter Hartman taught me was uh, listen very carefully to people because people are extremely good at making observations, but not very good at drawing the right conclusions from those ob observations. This was important in terms of my work working with, um, with volunteers. So for example, a mum might say, I can't produce enough milk for my baby. Um, good observation. The observation is she's not producing enough milk for her baby. But the conclusion that she can't doesn't follow at all. And in actual fact, most of the time is probably not right. Good observation, wrong conclusion. It's a very important life lesson for me. We are very good at making observations, not very good necessarily at coming to the right conclusions. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Man of integrity. They've been studying this guy for three years. Their observations are brilliant. This is the witness and testimony of Jesus' enemies. Man of integrity. They haven't tripped him up yet. Three years they can't find any spectacular leadership failures, any breach in his integrity. So they actually have to create one. They have to test his integrity. They have to manipulate events, see if they can trip him up. Tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? To cut to the chase, if Jesus says yes, uh, he is a traitor. If Jesus says no, he is a rebel. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The coin is made in the image and likeness of Caesar. 
Its purpose is to point to him, his authority, and his kingdom. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Their purpose, their creation mandate, is to point to God's authority, power, and kingdom. That's what coins are for. That's what human beings are for. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Jesus was a man of integrity. Um, That observation was universal, even made by his enemies. Uh, But actually, more than that, uh, Jesus was the man of integrity. The, the, The leader, the only leader in the history of the world with no spectacular leadership failures. Not one. Uh, Here's a good piece of advice then. Put your trust in him. Make an alliance with him. Do as he says, for he is able to save you. And he delights in forgiving us our sins. Let's um, just briefly finish back where we started. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Hezekiah, one of the best. No one like him before or since. Before or since, before Christ. Was Hezekiah God's anointed leader? Yes. Did Hezekiah make some spectacular leadership mistakes? Yes. Were those mistakes the result of gross sinfulness? Yes. But was Hezekiah God's anointed king and gifted for ministry? Yes. We we, we actually find it hard, really, to hold those things together, don't we? But it's important that we do. Um, it's important that we do as, as a church, as, as, a glo- as, as a global fellowship of Christians. Um, we, 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 we struggle with our leaders, don't we? we? We like to put them on pedestals and idolize them, no pun intended. Um, or we uh, proclaim loudly their errors as evidence that they shouldn't be in office at all. Um, and indeed, there are times when errors do mean resigning. Just ask uh, um, uh, Samuel uh, uh, or David. Um, But if we are to live by grace and grace alone, it shouldn't shock us that we find that grace and grace alone is actually essential for moving forward. Um, For those of you who attend this church, uh, you might find it hard to reconcile me being a pastor with some of my spectacular leadership failures. For uh, those of you uh, who've known me a long time, you know what they are. Uh, For many of you, you know what they are better than I do, because my conscience is clean. But that doesn't make me innocent. It also doesn't make me competent. Um, For those of you who can't think of any of my spectacular leadership failures, that's because you don't know me very well. Let's keep it that way. For those of us who live under the authority of bishops, 
we might find it hard to uh, reconcile their God-given authority with what are, at times, spectacular leadership failures. But those who live in glass houses should think twice about casting the first stone to uh, mash two sayings into one. Things for us to think and pray on. The Lord be with you. Amen.